Hello everybody and welcome to Brunvagoon, you will not get there without a power meter. Yes, today is a special episode, you will know more about that in a couple of minutes, maybe less, maybe one minute and a half. First of that, I just want to ask you if you can subscribe, rate and review this podcast into your favorite app while you are listening to this podcast, of course, especially if you are on Apple Podcasts, that's the best way to do it. If you can do that, then we can really jump on top of the charts of all the Apple Podcasts podcasts. You know what I mean, right? After that, I have to say thank you for following this podcast and listening to this episode and share this episode with your friends and to open for being close to me with this open up that I've been writing since a bit of time in all the gravel races and gravel roads and gravel rides because no races are on my portfolio for this year. In this season, it's sunny outside, even though it's perfect to go on the bike in these really muddy terrains. About training, about power meters and also about gravel riding and gravel bikes is gonna be the episode of today that is not gonna be host by me, so the interviewer is gonna was taken, was taken by Simon, and the guest of today is Dylan Johnson. You know already, in the last Tip Top Tuesday, I was talking with Simon and he told me, you know, the person that I followed the most on YouTube about training, about cycling training, about nutrition, about everything related to cycling, is Dylan Johnson, trainer, YouTuber, racer, and he talked with Simon for a solid bunch of time, but the interview is super interesting. I will let you listen to that. Hello everyone, and yeah, today it's me, Simon, instead of Stefano, on on daily episodes, on the weekly episode. And yeah, of course, it's going to be some more nerd stuff and some numbers and some coaching and some training. And yeah, this time I have a guest that I'm really looking forward to, uh, Dylan Johnson. Hi, Dylan. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> my pleasure, my pleasure. So for... For the people that don't know who Dylan Johnson is, uh, let's say, in my opinion, he's one of the greatest content makers on, on YouTube about cycling and about training. So if you have the opportunity, go and check his YouTube channel. Great. You'll find a lot, a lot of stuff that is really, really helpful. I, I think that's a little bit too much, but I appreciate it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, in my opinion, I really loved the beginning of the GCN show. Mm -hmm. uh, after a while, they got out of content. <laughs> so, and then I started, as people try to learn more and more about cycling, they need some, some content that is more in-depth. And what you're producing and what also I think the podcast of Trainer Road does, uh, I think it's very, very nice for people who like to train a lot and put some dedication in it. Yeah. You can also present yourself. So, I mean, who you are, how, how much do you cycle, how did you start everything? So feel free to present yourself. Right, right, right. You know, you, you just mentioned GCN real quick. I, I get quite a few comments comparing my content to GCN. Um, and I mean, they're so big at this point that it's really hard to compare, but I do get a lot of people saying, you know, the old GCN content, you know, I remember them being more like this and I don't even think I watched them when they first started uploading, but, uh, um, I've had people tell me like, don't, you know, keep your content the way it is. Don't turn into GCN. So, um, you know, I, 
uh, I'm going to try to do that. And I think what they mean by that is, you know, um, GCN does a lot of sponsored videos and you can't really tell what their opinion is versus what's being paid. And also I think they've kind of strayed away from training, which they did a lot more of. So, but you started your, your channel for, for fun actually, right? Or I was, uh, you know, so getting into a little bit about myself, I mean, I've been cycling for, uh, since I was 12 years old, I'm 25 now. And I, you know, I was probably got really serious into training around age 15, 16. And I started reading training books and trying to determine how to get faster. And that really kind of determined my career path. I mean, I got a lot of people get into college and don't know what they want to do. But I, I mean, my freshman year, I knew that I wanted to be a cycling coach and I followed that path and took classes that would, would get me there. Um, but the first two years of being a cycling coach, I really didn't have very many clients and I wasn't, you know, I, I needed a way of getting clients. So I would say certainly I started the YouTube channel for fun, but also it was kind of a way of advertising. Um, and of course, you know, with YouTube, you don't, you know, it's not paid advertising. I'm just kind of putting it out there and hopefully people will watch and find it interesting. And then, you know, uh, if enough people watch, then maybe enough people will want to hire me as a coach. So that was kind of the original thinking behind the channel. Yeah, which I, I think makes perfect sense. Uh, I also think that, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, your numbers in in the various videos of, of views and everything skyrocketed in the last whoa, six months. I've been there since the beginning, yeah. and then I just saw this, this number going up and up and up. <laughs> right. the, ch the channel is about... Uh, I, I would say maybe it's like 14 months. I started in November of, uh, 2018. So it's a little over a year old. And, uh, the first, you know, when I first started making anybody who first starts putting videos out on YouTube, you're not going to get a lot of views unless you're a celebrity of some sort and you have some way of driving traffic to your videos. But when you're new to the platform, um, you know, the audience isn't that big. I was getting maybe 100, 200 views per video. But the video that really set things off is I did a video about Zwift training plans and how, you know, I, I actually had a viewer at the time uh, ask me about Zwift training plans. He he said, what do you think of these training plans? Are these good to follow? And I'd never looked at Zwift training plans. And I took a look at them and I I was I was really kind of quite shocked at how bad they were. I would think that they would, you know, hire some coaches to make these training plans. And uh, so I was like, you know, honestly, this topic deserves a whole video. Um, and I wasn't even necessarily thinking that very many people would see it. I mean, my videos had typically gotten, like I said, 100 to 200 views. But um, that video just took off. I mean, I think it got, you know, 60,000 views in two weeks after I posted it. So um, that kind of put my channel on the map. But uh, I would say the views over the past, like you said, six months or so have uh, have been really high for every single video, not just like 
a video here or there. So I'm I'm really happy with it. Yeah, yeah. I remember that Zwift video. I mean, more or less, the, the message was that those intervals are way overcomplicated and they don't follow a precise idea behind it. No, so I really remember that one. And uh, and yeah, I mean, to to let the people. Uh, know what your youtube channel is about and why is it different from others about cycling uh, and something that i really really appreciate uh, everything that you put in the video is backed uh, backed up by by some research and you also give the links to to those papers which i i really really like because it's not easy to find the an explanation right. that is not subjective it's objective no? yep exactly so you know, this is pretty typical amongst nutrition videos and weightlifting videos is citing sources in videos and then linking the sources in the description. Interestingly enough, that is not common in cycling videos on YouTube. And I don't know what the reason. Not at all. Yeah, I don't know what the reason for that is, because, I mean, there's certainly science out there um, that involves cyclists, but, uh, you know, I talk a lot about weightlifting on my channel, but when I was first researching weightlifting, I mean, obviously I would look at the papers, but I also watched some YouTube videos on weightlifting and the weightlifting crowd, um, to their credit, they, the good ones, at least the, they cite sources on their videos. And, uh, and I was like, man, there needs to be a cyclist out there who does the same thing. Um, yeah. So you know, might, but... might be due to the fact that I mean, weightlifting is quite objective. I mean, you have this amount of kilograms, and in cycling, the the let's say the objective part came in with the power meters just recently. You know, so it was not very spread until let's say three four years ago. Power meter costed more than thousand euros or dollars. Now they are accessible for less than half. So people are starting to to use them and they have questions. So they are starting also to look for answers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of objective research on cycling. In fact, I mean a lot of times uh cycling is the best way to measure aerobic performance in the lab because I mean you can have people run on a treadmill, but if they're not trained in running, uh it's a lot easier to hurt yourself running most people are not going to put themselves on a bike. Um, so, I mean, like we're talking about untrained populations here. Of course, when you look at research for cyclists, you want to look at a trained cycling population, but there is, there is plenty of research out there that, that deals with cyclists. And, um, of course with power meters, it, it just makes the, uh, the research more objective. Um, so, you know, uh, and how affordable power meters are, uh, you, you can, the same thing that they're doing in a lab to test whether or not, you know, this or that is having an effect on 20 minute power. You can do the exact same thing to yourself. You can, um, in the real world and, and you can see the data right there. So, um, yeah, I, I find, you know, like you said in the gym, it's how much weight you can lift. That's objective. On the bike, it's how much power you can do. That's objective as well. So okay, and yeah, regarding coaching. So uh, one thing that I'm curious: what is your goal with coaching? Because you started doing it because you like it and because you took it as a as a job. But when you coach people, what do you want to achieve? Because usually the the person that is training is trying to achieve something. Right. 
but also the coach is, let's say, it's nothing different to what's happening to the other guy. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when you're, when you're coaching, the goal becomes whatever the athlete's goal is. So if their goal is to, you know, finish Dirty Kanza or, you know, win their local, you know, training race series or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, that that is as a coach that's now your goal and you have to figure out what is what is the best way to achieve that goal um but do do you plan the goals together or do you let the the cyclist decide what is his goal i let them decide what the goal is i mean i know i know there are coaches who are a little bit more suggestive about what their athletes goal should be but uh i mean for my athletes you know, I, I listen to them. What, what do they want? I'm not necessarily, I mean, every, every once in a while I'll suggest, um, you know, maybe you should do this race or maybe, maybe we can't peak for both these races in such crow in, you know, the proximity that they are to each other. You kind of have to choose one or the other. Every once in a while I'll make a suggestion like that, but I, I listen to the athlete and see what, what their goal is. Mm-hmm. Perfectly understand. Oh, so I think I more or less understood who is Dylan as a coach. I want to understand who is Dylan as a cyclist. <laughs> so, uh, okay, the favorite, I have to ask you the favorite question that Stefano has. Uh, how many bikes do you have? Uh, let me count. So I currently have a trail bike, two cross-country bikes, two gravel bikes, and uh, I guess I have a fixed gear bike as well. So what is the total on that? I didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a lot. I think it's six. Could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't ride all of them every day, and uh, even because it would be that it would mean that you do 150 kilometers every day or right, stuff like that. Right. Well, <laughs> some of them, you know, I I try to actually have a race like for my cross country race bike, and now my gravel bike. I'm fortunate enough to have two gravel bikes. I actually have a training bike and a race bike. So. Um, and I, I, you know, it depends on how serious about cycling you are, but if you're taking it seriously, I think it's very important to have a training bike and a race bike. Um, especially when you're putting in long miles, uh, the training bike gets thoroughly abused and, um, you know, in order to not have to replace everything before race day, having the nice fresh race bike, that's pretty much set up identical to the training bike, uh, been a huge help for me i mean i um you know i used to like i just recently got a new race gravel bike and now i have a training gravel bike um but i used to have to for my gravel bike i'd used to you know have to replace the whole drivetrain before a race because i mean it's just so worn out from so much training Um, yeah yeah. you know those bikes which one is your favorite um i'm i I don't you can pick only one only one only one choose one (laughs) see so i'm very much you know how this whole underbiking or is that the word for it underbike thing is a trend right now where you pick a bike that's like not suitable for whatever you're doing like you might ride a cyclocross bike on a mountain bike trail or you might ride a road bike on gravel or something i'm not in i'm into riding whatever bike is the best for the course and i do the I do the same thing for racing. I'm like, what bike setup is going to be 
most suitable for this course. And I try to get my bike as close to that as possible. Uh, as, when it comes to favorite bike, if there's a bike that's perfectly dialed for the course, like I wouldn't change a single thing, um, which is of course different for every course. That's my favorite bike. So let's say also on the uh, on the topic of how how wide is your tires are, are your tires you change them depending oh, on the course or totally, on the... totally dependent on the course yeah, totally yeah, yeah. on the course um, gravel tire so mountain bike tires are a little bit more consistent I'll usually run um, Maxis Aspen or Recon Race uh, 2.2 sometimes I'll go 2.3 but rarely um so that's that's pretty consistent for gravel i i've been experimenting with a lot of things like i usually don't go under 38 um so that's probably the low end and then i've been experimenting with fatter and fatter tires and i've been i've been liking that uh right now i'm really liking the the 42 specialized pathfinder pro um i mentioned that in a recent video it's it's basically a road slick in the middle with uh knobs on either side and by the way i'm not sponsored by specialized at all i just really like this tire and i honestly i i think that that is probably going to be my go-to for most gravel races this year um so uh but i'm i'm always experimenting with uh with different tire setups but what will you be racing this year mostly so gravel long extreme long distances what are your big yeah. goals for the season so i've always been a long distance guy even when i was uh first started racing i basically the the longer the race the better i do um i mean i've done short track racing and crit racing and cyclocross and, and it's fun and i like it but uh that's not where um that's not where i shine and uh i i'm really happy that gravel has embraced ultra distance racing i mean the most popular gravel race in the world dirty kansas is 200 miles which is an extremely long distance i'm very happy about that and uh i am embracing more more gravel racing this year than i ever have in the past um i'm planning to do dirty kansas belgian waffle ride um steamboat gravel gravel worlds um i'll still have mountain bike races in there like i just did first 24 hour mountain bike race i'll still do 100 mount 100 mile mountain bike racing um you know i start i started with mountain bike racing and i and i still love mountain bike racing so um i still plan to do that but i i do plan to do a lot more gravel racing this year as well mm -hmm. and i mean connected to that let's let's go to the probably the main topic that we can <laughs> we can tackle today so training so you mentioned your races. How do you create a training plan uh, with your race calendar uh, already planned? Do you plan the training based on the A races? Uh, do you plan a calendar that puts you in reasonably good conditions in various periods of the year? Or how do you do it for yourself and for the others? Yeah, so you want to start off with... Um determining what your A races are, and then you kind of work backwards from that. So you, you do want to, um, you do want to be in your best physical shape around the time of the A race. So, um, you know, you, you kind of work back from a season level and then go into 
the individual month level and then go into an individual week. And that's kind of how I would do it. So from a, you know, from a season standpoint, generally, uh, like if you've got an A race in, in the summer, you, you know, you want to start thinking about serious training, you know, December, January, if, if your goal, you know, June, right. So, um, you know, when you, when you first start, um, training, if you will, and I'm a big proponent of having an off season, I think you should have some period of the year where you're not training. That doesn't mean you're not riding, but you're not, you know, you don't have things on the schedule to do you. It's a mental break. It's a physical break, uh, super important. But when that ends and you start training again, um, I, when, when, the training first starts, uh, there's a lot of gym focused work. In fact, I would say that gym, what you do in the gym is the main focus of the first two, one to two months of your training, um, depending on how much time you have before that, before that a race. Um, and during that time you, you may be doing very, very little intensity on the bike and you really think of those gym sessions as your intensity. And, uh, I mean, when you first get in the gym and you haven't been going to the gym, you're going to be plenty sore from going to the gym and you're not even going to want to think about doing any intensity on the bike, um, nor will you really be able to because you're almost in a constant state of soreness. And as soon as you're not sore from your last gym session, you're going back to the gym. So um, eventually, you know, you'll get to the point where you don't get that sore after a gym session, you become used to it. And it's around that point where, uh, we start focusing more on, on the bike training and depending on the athlete, I'll either cut gym workout completely if they've got a really busy race schedule or, um, we'll reduce lifting to a maintenance level. And what I mean by that is that the gym work that they're doing is still high intensity. So it's still heavy weight, uh, low reps, but, uh, reduce the volume of lifting. So let's say you've worked your way up to 10 total, um, leg focus sets in the gym. You know, you, you do four squats, three sets of deadlift, and then maybe three, uh, you know, three other leg exercises, you know, box jumps, lunges, whatever. Uh, you might reduce that down to five total sets, or if it's, uh, or if racing is getting really busy, you know, you might just get in the gym, do two sets of squats and get out. Like it's literally a 10 minute gym session. And, and people are like, man, that seems like a waste of time, but really we're not going in there to get sore or to have a great gym workout. We're just trying to maintain at that point because, um, you know, the further you get in your training, the more important the on the bike work is, and you really want those high intensity bike sessions to take priority, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But this applies, in your opinion, to all the disciplines. So gravel, mountain bike, road, for, for all of them is the, the weightlifting is, or in general, the gym is, is really helpful, right? Every, yeah, every discipline I would, uh, I would recommend uh, going to the gym. Uh, at the very least in the off season and, and gym work becomes more important as you get older. There's, there's actually studies that have shown that, um, uh, gym work had a larger effect on master cyclists than it did 
for cyclists in their 20s. So older athletes lifting, um, you're going to see even more of a benefit from going to the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great insight. So I'll, I also try to implement this in, in the trainings that I do for myself. What I do that is, let's say, similar to this concept is that in the period that you mentioned you're doing gym, I'm trying to put uh, very short sprints and very powerful during endurance rides. So the idea behind it being that you stress similar muscles to what you do in the gym and you give it all in six, eight, ten seconds, which means that if you put the hardest gear that you have at starting from 60 or 50 RPM, you're going to do more or less, yeah, 10 repeats, which is more, more or less comparable maybe to what you do in a gym, even if it's not really the same. Right. Exactly. No, and, and you know, uh, for myself personally, I've never considered myself much of a sprinter. Uh, but uh, if, if I've been going to the gym regularly, you know, I'm still, I'm still not a great sprinter. If you line me up on a starting line with a bunch of big dudes who are crit specialists, they're, they're all going to smoke me if it's the end of a one hour crit. But uh, if, you know, if, uh, if it's a select group at the end of a really long race, I can hold my own in a sprint now, you know, I, my, my max sprint is probably, you know, 1200, 1300 Watts. Uh, mm-hmm. But it does, how much do you weigh? How much do you weigh? If uh, I can ask 70 kilograms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Those aren't insane numbers, but I would say, you know, after seven hours of riding, my sprint is still like 1100 watts. So it hasn't gone down a lot. Um, But I I attribute that all to the gym work. And of course, you know, a little bit of on the bike sprinting as well. But, uh, you know, if if you if you at all want to be a good sprinter, let's say you do, you know, you do criteriums or you do, I mean, cyclocross, you're constantly sprinting in and out of corners. Mountain biking requires a lot of power. I mean, gym work is, is important for all cyclists, but especially if you're doing any sort of sprinting, um, or any, sort of, you know, really high power, um, super important. And that is really also, it, it's really trainable, no? The, the power, maximum power output. Right. Right. I mean, there, there's a huge genetic component. Um, you know, there, there are people who are very naturally gifted in their sprinting ability and there are people who are not, uh, you're not, you're not going to reverse that, but you, it is trainable. Like you said, it, it's, it's very much trainable more than people think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So we understood more or less how, how do you program it, uh, everything and what you like to do. So first you take a macro picture of what are the most important races of the year. Then you start making a plan going backwards. And mm-hmm. You start your plans with, yeah, with weightlifting before going on the bike to make a good basis for, for everything that will follow. Right. I would add that as you get closer to racing, you want the work that you're doing on the bike to become more specific to your race. So, you know, find out what what is your power going to look like during that race? Is it going to be super spiky, lots of power spikes all over the place? Is it going to be, are you doing a time trial where you've got a dead flat, uh, you know, you just got to hold a certain power for a while? Are you going to be doing climbs? All of that, it's taken into consideration when you're, 
when you're building out your training in the month to two months before that race, because that's that month to two months before that race, you really want your training to become specific to your goal. Mm-hmm. And before that, I mean, you prepare yourself to be able to sustain that period of trainings. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, instead of, uh, let's say, uh, especially with with people that have work and yeah, and, and let's say let's say they have limited time to to train. Uh, in winter times, the indoor trainer is probably something you need to start considering, even because if you don't, means that you'll go out during the night or during the morning. It's dark and it's freezing cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you make any differences in training uh, or? The, let's say the tra- daily training plan, if it is indoor or outdoor? Yeah. So if, um, if a client um, says, you know, I'm stuck, I'm stuck indoors, what do I do? I'll, I'll adjust it. I mean, if they've got like a five hour ride to do, I'm not going to make them do five hours on the trainer. I'll adjust it. That being said, I, I hear a lot of people talking about how, you know, uh, an hour indoors is equivalent to two hours outside or an hour indoors is equivalent to an, they, they make all these, like, you know, if you do this much inside, it's, it's worth this much time outside. I don't. And I think it's bullshit. What do you think? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And and a lot of times they're, they're saying, well, you know, you don't stop pedaling when you're inside. Well, you know, where else you don't stop pedaling is if you're, um, riding on a flat road if your whole ride was flat you would never stop pedaling but you wouldn't say i did a five-hour ride when in fact you only rode for three hours right so i think more what that stems from is that people just get bored riding inside so they they want to make it feel like they rode more than they actually did when in fact you know you didn't do three hours you did two hours (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yeah, true. I mean, those two hours, however, they can be very high quality. So compared to yeah. what you can achieve outdoors, if you have, let's say, 10 minutes to go out from the city, then you have a traffic jam or something, and you make a two hours ride in zone two, you'll probably have 60, 70 minutes in zone two. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, the uh, you can make your, your indoor riding very high quality, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to make it look like you rode more hours than you actually did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agree on that. I mean, from from this year, I started making some really long uh, rides indoor. I mean, really long, uh, four hours and a half uh, indoor. I don't know if that's considered very long or I, stupid I or, <laughs> or long. I would consider that a very long indoor ride. I mean, I'm fortunate that I don't have to ride very much outside the the climate. But I, you know, four and a half hours on the trainer that I consider. A crazy indoor ride. Yeah, what what I realized is that if I start my indoor riding that I know that I'll be there for three hours or four hours, it's not really that more difficult. So you just accept your fate and you, you go with it. Instead, if you go on a trainer and you don't have, let's say, a precise training in your mind, that's never ending. So if you don't have a... You just go on the trainer and say, yeah, let's do one hour of something without some some plan to follow that's never never ending and i also heard a lot of people complaining about how hard it is to go on the trainer because they don't probably in my opinion they don't go on it with the right mindset so that really changes a lot right yeah that's super important when you're riding on the trainer i mean if you were 
let's say on the plan you had an hour ride so you only have to do an hour on the trainer if you then got 55 minutes in and somebody told you oh sorry i meant two hour rides so you've got another hour <laughs> you know that would be that would be torture but if you start the ride knowing that you had two hours I think you can kind of get yourself in that mental space where you're like, all right, I'm going to be on the trainer a while. Uh, here we go. You know, suffer. Uh, one, one more thing. So um, recently I found uh, myself choosing uh, an approach. So given that um, I work during the day, I have time in the morning and in the evening. Um, willing to go to train around 16 to 20 hours per week. I find it almost impossible to, to do every day two or three hours on the trainer straight in the evening. So it just doesn't work for me. So what I tried inserting is half an hour of zone two the moment I wake up. So I, I wake up, I jump on the bike, and I do a little bit of, let's say, activation. I try to do some exercise. Uh, it can be also a very small run, but uh, at a slow and steady pace. Uh, the moment I wake up. Uh, do you think that this kind of approach can be helpful to build uh, a little bit of volume overall and it can help the, the training plan? Or do you think it is something that is just, given that the nature of the effort is very short, um, it's just, let's say, not so efficient? Right. This is a question I get a lot because I talk about doing long rides on my channel and people often say, well, you know, I don't have time to do a four-hour ride. Can I do two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, or one hour in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, whatever it is. Um, so there are certain adaptations that you get with a long ride that you don't see with shorter rides. For example, um, you know, as you deplete your glycogen stores, your body is relying more on fat as a fuel source. Um, you deplete your glycogen stores the longer and longer you get into a ride. I mean, of course, you can go into a ride fasted, and that's the whole theory behind fasted training. That's a whole different topic. But uh, And then also, you know, the longer that you get into a ride, um, your slow twitch muscle fibers fatigue, and then your body is forcing your fast twitch muscle fibers to do endurance work, which they don't, you know, they don't typically do. So, you know, you're kind of, teaching your body to endure right so you know which is is not all that surprising that doing a long ride would improve your endurance um so then the question becomes well i don't have time for the long ride can i split it into two and those certainly doing two rides two two-hour rides is better than just uh, doing one two-hour ride because your volume's higher, but I think the best case scenario would be to do one four-hour ride if that's your goal for the day. If your goal for the day is to do a long ride and get the adaptations from a long ride uh, and really build your endurance, best case scenario, uh, one long ride, then you know split it into two if you need to, and that is certainly better than just doing one short ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Understand. So it makes perfect sense. And instead, so another big topic that all cyclists that have a Garmin have. So Strava. Strava, training, and the various segments. So 
how do you use Strava? And in in the training plans that you make for other people, does Strava have a big effect or people that train with you tend to ignore that? I also need to hear the backwards hat Dylan opinion on, on this because I invited also him in this episode. Yeah, right, right, right. So this, honestly, I think probably the very first backwards, and for people who don't know, what backwards hat Dylan is. So yeah, yeah, know. let's let's introduce him because he's a very <laughs> okay, very characteristic person of your of your channel. So you go. So backwards hat Dylan is, you know, I'll I'll come on wearing a backwards hat and uh I'll basically say the wrong thing to do. So for example, you know, if I got a video about doing recovery rides, backwards hat Dylan would say, you know, oh, I never take a recovery day. I just, I just ride as hard as I can every single day or something like that. Right. Um, and I, I can't remember what video I started doing that on, but as soon as I started doing that, people were like, oh man, you need to bring backwards hat Dylan back. So yeah, yeah, that's, he's amazing. He's an amazing guy. He, he's the friend that every cyclist has that just goes for Strava comes. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I think what he represents is that guy. We all know that guy, right? So yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. And honestly, you know, I've been backwards hat Dylan before. So some of what backwards hat Dylan says is is from personal experience. I mean, I, I some of this stuff I had to learn through trial and error um and uh and yeah backwards hat dylan like backwards hat dylan is is uh is that guy that we all know on the group ride always going for strava koms always doing races you know uh you know not not necessarily the best training practices um so yeah, I think that uh, it adds some humor to the videos and it, it adds some relatability. Um, getting back to the Strava question, um, I mean, what would backwards hat Dylan do? He would he would never do an interval and he would just chase every AOM <laughs> within a 50 mile radius, right? <laughs> but uh, but when, it, when it comes to what would forwards hat Dylan do I almost always just ignore I mean I have Strava and every single ride I do automatically uploads to Strava but I very 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 rarely go after Strava KOMs um, and I almost always just ignore it and in fact if you look on my Strava you can see every ride that I've done in the past year but it's it I think every ride is like titled afternoon ride or morning ride because that's just what yeah I'm yeah titles um, so you you also have relatively a low number of koms right? I, I think i have i i've got some koms but i guess if you compare it to other people it's it's a yeah because i'm not but, but by the way so what's your uh I, I have to ask this i really have to ask this what's your ftp or critical power i don't know which model do you use but yeah, I use, <laughs> I use FTP. my my ftp so i haven't ridden my bike in a week because I did a 24 hour race and I'm taking kind of a break before I start training again. So if I were to jump on a bike and do a one hour test right now, it probably wouldn't be this number, but, uh, generally I would say my FTP is about 340 Watts. Um, that's, 
that's just kind of general race shape. If I'm really peaking, it might it might eke up to 350, but I would say 340 is a safe bet. And, that and that's for, for, for around 70 kilograms, right? Right, 70 kilograms. And backwards head even has 360, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> backwards, head, backwards head Dylan's equation for uh, finding <laughs> is ask your friend what his FTP is and then add 10 watts. <laughs> right. I figured um, that out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, at that watt per kilograms, you really should have. I mean, you could have a a bigger number of kilograms, but if you don't go for it, it means that there's a reason, no? Right. Well, so most of the time, I you know, I'm not going for kilograms just because when I have a high intensity day, there's a purpose behind it. Um, you know, I'm trying to achieve something and uh you know if you're going after a kom a lot of times it's like a one and done like there's a 20 minute climb you got to go all out for 20 minutes to get that climb and then you know try to do another 20 minute eff effort and it's probably not going to go very well i mean if you want to do a threshold workout and you want to do two by 20 or three by 20 you know you can't smoke yourself in the first one so I mean, in that sense, uh, you know, uh, Strava KOMs rarely fit in the training plan. I don't want to say they never fit because there are certain situations where, you, you know, maybe you're tuning up for a race and you've got a section of road or trail that's real specific to, you know, what you're going to be racing. And, you know, you could try to go for the KOM on that and that would be specific training. But those situations where Strava KOM hunting fits into the training are few and far between in my opinion. But let's say instead of the KOM, let's say there is a segment, no? So let's say around your area you have a hill that is 11 minutes long for yourself. So if you go 300 watts for you it's going to be 11 minutes. Then at the top there is a very nice view and everything. In your training plan you put let's say let's do threshold repeats of 10 minutes. Mhm. Mm what would you do and what would the people that you train do? Would you complete the whole climb, so one more minute, uh, to have the view at the top, to, to rest at the top, and then do everything 11 minutes instead of 10? Would you be angry if someone would do this? So I, I want to hear your approach on this kind of things. I, I, would not be I would not be angry at someone doing 11-minute intervals instead of 10-minute intervals. Not a, uh, you know, whatever. One minute is not. What's your tolerance? Let's say a fifteen percent of the time, that is ten percent, twenty. So if you have some intervals, but the segment is a little bit longer for some reason. Yeah, I mean, the so you know, if somebody's if somebody says, "Hey, I've got climbs in my area, and they're this long or that long or whatever, however long they are." Um, you know, you can do intervals by time. You can say, hey, I've got 10 minute intervals to do. Or you can say, hey, I've got, I've got, you know, four hill repeats to do. And whenever you reach the top of the climb, that's the end of the interval. And so your intervals could be, you know, instead of 10 minutes, it could be 10 minutes and 30 seconds, 10 minutes and 40 seconds, 10 minutes, and 50 seconds, you know, the interval time is changing because the, the amount of time it takes you to get to the top is slightly different. Um, that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to have a slightly different amount of time for your interval because it took you that much time to get to the top of the hill. I'm not, I'm not super, I don't know. Yeah, but let's, uh, let's say from the coaching perspective, you cannot 
plan the trainings for everyone based on the location where they are, right? So you just give them the the, the times that they need to follow, and then they have to decide the best possible, uh, let's say, circuit or yeah route to to make it happen. Yeah, I mean exactly. I mean, from a coaching perspective, I'm I'm just telling them how much time I want the interval to be. Uh, it's up to them to decide what route they want to choose for that interval. Yeah, I understand. Which, which I mean, your approach seems seems reasonable. So as long as you stay in uh, in a reasonable range of what you're expected to do, make the best possible that you you can you can make and make it fun for you. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, if you if if uh, if it's easier for you to get through the interval session when you're when you've got a climb that you have to do and you have to make it to the top of the climb, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say don't do that. I mean, if that, if that climb is 11 minutes and it, and it's 10 minute interval day, you know, that's, that's not a big deal. I mean, if the climb is, if the climb is 20 minutes and it's 10 minute interval day, I'm going to say, look, just do half the climb. Don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't go to the can't you choose another one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Makes sense. So instead, uh, on training, because this is the main topic, and now we need to go to the more nerd stuff. Uh, what software do you use to monitor the the training progress? Do you use Golden Cheetah? Do you use Training Peaks? Do you use Garmin Connect? Do you use other software that I'm not aware of its existence? <laughs> I use Training Peaks. I've never even used Golden Cheetah. I've used Training Peaks since day one, and uh, and I mean, I there once once you get used. I mean, probably for for someone who's new to Training Peaks, all those metrics can be intimidating. But once you get used to them, uh, you mean CTL, ATL, stress, balance, or what do you mean in specific? Yeah, I mean CTL, ATL. I mean, I have people constantly asking me what you know. What is what is CTL? What does that mean? Uh, so that I mean that that stuff. If you don't know what that is, that can be intimidating on Training Peaks. Um, you know, honestly, he and I think you know this is something that we wanted to touch on with uh, CTL, ATL, TSB. You got to take those numbers with a grain of salt. Those numbers are not the end all be all of training. You've um, had good races. Um, you know, with a high CTL, I've had good races with a low CTL. I've had good races with a high TSB. I've had good races with a low TSB. It's not, um, those, I mean, those numbers can tell you a lot, but at the same time, you can, you can drive yourself crazy trying to make those numbers what you think they should be. Um, yeah, even because, I mean, 100 TSS can be achieved in completely different ways. So exactly, exactly. It's oh. not, it's not the same thing. Right. So somebody like somebody who's doing, you know, uh, like tour divide or something, I mean, they're riding, you know, 20 hours a day for weeks. They're, 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 uh, they're doing an extremely high training stress score every day. So their CTL is going to be through the roof. Um, does that mean that they are going to then be able to jump into a crit and do well? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's funny because, uh, training peaks CT, you know, they call it CTL, but you know, I don't know if they thought, okay, that confuses people. 
they they call it fitness ctl they, they call fitness and that is super misleading because just because you're it makes people think that okay that number the higher it is the higher my fitness yeah i, I consider it more or less a, a measure of volume that you do rather than anything else so fitness doesn't in my opinion doesn't really connect to, to what that number is exactly but, exactly um so you know so i understand that also that you don't plan your your trainings or training periods or seasons based only on target levels of ctl or stuff like that right no not at all not at all i I, you know, when I'm train, when I'm planning out somebody's training, I, that's not uh, that honestly, I'll look at CTL. Um, but that's honestly not in my, in my thinking when I'm planning it out, I'm plan I'm thinking, all right, how many hours a week do they have to train? And then what is proper training within those constraints? I'm not saying, okay, they need to have a CTL of 80 or 90 or whatever it is you know, so I need to make them get to that number. That's, that's not in my thinking when I'm planning out training. Yeah. 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 I agree. And how often do you test? I mean, yourself and the people that you train, is it something that is, is scheduled or is it something that you test when you see the need? Because I mean, at some point you will have some people that clearly they have to do repeats at threshold and they, they are just become easy. And you notice that in various ways with, probably the heart rate being the first. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, you do we do a lot more testing in the off season when when there's not a lot of races. Once you get into racing, it gets a little bit harder to test because you're constantly recovering from racing and then trying to get in hard workouts and then recovering for the next race. So, you know, and also by that point, you know, FTP probably isn't changing a whole lot. But early season and, you know, the off season, your FTP is one changing more because you're going from a state of not riding very much to riding a lot more. And uh, also it's it, uh, just logistically, it's easier to carry out tests every month. Um, so generally I would say in the off season, it's probably a monthly occurrence. And certainly if I look at somebody's training and I see that they're easily completing intervals, like let's, you know, say I got them doing uh, uh, three by 20 minutes at FTP and they're like, yeah, that was an easy workout. You know, no one should say that three by 20 minutes at FTP is easy, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, something, exactly. There's something wrong there. And uh most likely what it is is that their FTP is higher than we have it set at. So, you know, we got to retest and, uh, and you know, then they're happy that their FTP went up. Um, but then, you know, then their, then their workouts are a little bit harder. So. <laughs> yeah. I had a, I had a funny story about a guy who was supposed to do, I don't remember what was precisely the training, but it was something around the VO2 max. Uh, he had to keep, let's say VO2, the maximal power that he can sustain for five minutes a number of times and instead of taking this number he took the maximum power that he could sustain for three minutes and he completed the, the whole the whole training yeah you know he, he said it was a little bit hard yes i looked at the numbers and was like oh of course it was hard you should have died at the third interval <laughs> so, <laughs> and say at the end of the story we laughed about it and he just turned a new a new ftp test the following week <laughs> right 
yeah. yeah these things happen occasionally and uh, it's fun to see and what instruments do you use when you test so i understand you you base most of the your trainings on the power meter mm-hmm. you use or you don't use the heart rate and uh, yeah. cadence sensor yes or no uh, so just to know what what is important for for you to have right yeah so no i i use, i like people to have heart rate too along with power because that that tells you some things about your training uh, you know i think the biggest thing that heart rate is useful for is telling you when you're fatigued because when you're fatigued your heart rate is gonna you know if you go out for an interval session and uh you can't get your heart rate up i mean that's a that's a huge sign that you need to you know just back it off to make that a, a light endurance day and try the the intervals maybe you need a couple days of rest or maybe you need to try try the intervals the next day um heart rate heart rate can really tell you a lot so i i like people to have heart rate along with power um cadence uh you know i'm a little iffy on the science so i know that I'll, and i get this whole time people are like oh man you know the pros do a ton of of low cadence work or uh you know this guy's doing high oh cadence. yeah 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 the, the, on the low cadence drill we, we need to open uh an extra because it's something that is extremely popular in italy like extremely so 50 rpm going uphill people love it i don't know why <laughs> okay but sorry let's keep going <laughs> so you know i um and I, I did a whole video about this where I, I looked at the science on cadence and it's it's very inconclusive. I mean, there are studies that show that low cadence intervals did better than normal cadence intervals, but then equally not, equally there's there's just as many studies that showed that riding at your preferred cadence, whatever that may be, low, high, whatever, that was the best way to improve your performance. So to me, the 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 question is still open. I mean, we have not found an answer to this question. Uh, you know, should you be doing low cadence or high cadence or whatever, whatever cadence? Um, you know, should should you be doing these drills in order to improve your performance? I think from you know a lot of people will then ask, you know, should uh, while you're actually racing or or while you're actually like in the group ride, should you focus on, on raising your cadence or, or something like that? And I think that the science shifts to just riding at your preferred cadence in order to optimize performance right then and there. But as far as, as far as training goes, I, I don't think this question is, is answered yet of, uh, yeah, probably not. Uh, one thing that you ever used or heard of muscle oxygen monitors? Yep. Yep. I have never. So I haven't used them, but uh, I certainly heard of them. Um, yeah, there, there is the Moxie. There was the Human that it has been shut down now, and which I think it's a pity. Uh, I think it's a mix of an objective and subjective tool that can lead to some conclusions about uh, how people react to trainings because it's a metric that is yet not fully discovered, not discovered at all. And it shows a number of things that are just surprising. It's an area that I've got to look. I've got to look more into. I haven't, you know, like I said, I haven't personally used them, and uh, uh, I think 
honestly, I think it'd be a, a great topic for a future video, but I got to do my own research on it. Yeah, I think there's very, it's not a lot of research about it. So I try to look at it a little bit. And then I, with a couple of friends, we're just testing various things that we, we like. And some things really surprise us. So for example, we have some intervals stable at threshold. So you see that the muscle oxygen, the hemoglobin that is in your muscle stays more or less stable, slowly declines. Then you suddenly change the cadence and this number completely shifts for some time, which can mean that your muscles react somehow to this thing. So to a change of cadence, having the, the power stable. So can it be helpful? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I think it might be a tool that in the future will tell us a little bit more about cadence and it probably will be different from cyclist to cyclist. But I'm really looking forward to, to see if some things will develop out of that. And what. But yeah, it might be some, some answers right there. Right, right. And one thing that you said, uh, I think it depends cyclist to cyclist. Uh, as far as cadence goes, that is absolutely correct. Um, you know, some people are naturally spinners. Some people are naturally grinders. Trying to change that, I don't, I don't think that's uh, necessarily the best approach. If you like using a low cadence, go ahead and use a low cadence. If you like spinning, then then spin. Um, I, you know, the I, when we're talking when when we're talking about how much of a difference it is, we're talking about, I mean, a difference of you know twenty RPM, which which. Uh, it's it's not it's not a lot, but when you see it, I mean, you can see somebody grinding versus spinning, and you're like, oh man, that looks like uh, yeah. But in any case, we're talking about let's say reasonable cadences. I mean, I think something around sixty to 100, 110, or stuff like that. Because if you see someone going uphill at thirty five, forty, I don't know if he's a grinder, but. <laughs> He's really, really, really a big grinder. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, no, cadence super, uh, super variable between people, um, and uh, it that that too makes it hard to research because you know, for example, let's say we've got a group of ten people, and uh, you know, you could have outliers where somebody's natural, their natural preferred cadence is a hundred, and then another person's naturally preferred cadence is 60 then when you have when you split them into groups where you know this group rides at 60 and this group rides at 100 i mean some people are loving riding at 100 and some people hate it right so it uh, it, it it's an extra variable in there when testing cadence that uh it just makes it more difficult more difficult to test mm -hmm. Well, good. That's that was some of the nerd stuff that I was really <laughs> curious about. Yeah. So you said also that you use the FTP and not the critical power mostly, or do you yeah. use both of them? Uh, yeah, I use mostly FTP until threshold. It's probably I mean it, it's really the same. So and above threshold, well, yeah, more or less. Uh, there are some differences, but in any case, both models I think are 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 very very valid so you just if you train with one method if you choose one method you have to train with that method if you choose the other method you have to keep it consistent and go with that one so don't mix the two things <laughs> in between 
right? Exactly. And food, do you do you make some trainings so low carb? So with we mentioned before the low glycogen stores, before some endurance rides. Do you give also let's say dietary um, suggestions or instructions uh, to to the people that yeah. you follow, or do you avoid doing that because it's it can lead to some consequences that are let's say better covered by a diet, diet how do you call it dietologist <laughs> well i'll say you know, i'm not a uh, i'm not a dietitian but i have looked into nutrition extensively i've i've looked into a ton of research on nutrition uh but i don't have a degree in nutrition so if somebody i don't i don't create meal plans for people and i don't you know uh, that's not part of what I do as part of my coaching. If if somebody wants that level of detail, I I recommend that they find, um, you know, somebody who's more qualified. But uh, if if I if they just ask me questions about nutrition, I'm I'm open for that discussion, and I will I will discuss nutrition with them. You know, you mention um, low carb. Uh, low carb is is uh, you know kind of a a trend right now, uh, super popular in, in the fitness industry. And I mean, just with people in general trying to lose weight. Um, but it is, it is far from an optimal diet for cyclists. Uh, uh, maybe I, I was, uh, I didn't express myself right. So, uh, because what I understood, uh, you, you thought is like the ketogenic diet. Uh, what I meant is like taking 24 hours before training, and staying low on carbs or taking 24 hours before a training and staying high on carbs. Right. Right. Yeah. So no, that's uh, that's the method that's becoming more popular as well among cyclists. And uh, I did, I did a video on fasted training and there is some research to show that it might be helpful. There's some research to show that it might not be, but I think that the, uh, if you want to do fasted training, the key is that you never do high intensity sessions fasted. If you're doing fasted sessions, they have to be low intensity sessions. And uh, one method that that seems to work really well in the research is if you have a high intensity session one day, um, then perhaps you don't completely replenish your carbohydrate stores after that session. Um, and then the next day you wake up, don't eat breakfast. And uh, by that point, I mean, you, you had a high intensity session the day before, and haven't eaten that many carbohydrates since. So you're pretty well depleted when you start that next day's ride. You go out on that ride in a depleted state. Um, and they have shown that, you know, uh, groups doing that method um, versus doing, doing normal normal training with normal, uh, normal carb feeding um, has actually shown more benefit. So uh, yeah, very interesting research there. Yeah. So you're actually forcing your, your body to use fats right. because carbs are not available. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, given that most of the cyclists or yeah, the amateur cyclists have a limited number of hours that they can dedicate weekly to, to the bike, uh, what do you think is the optimal choice in this balance? I mean, how much time would someone dedicate to training and so how much time would someone dedicate to eating, so nutrition? Because my idea is I have two hours this evening to do stuff for myself. 
I can either train two hours and then drink a recovery drink or dedicate an hour 30 and prepare a proper meal afterwards. Uh, so to have all the, the, let's say, healthy vegetables, healthy stuff, uh, let's say some rice or whatever, uh, it's uh, optimal from, from this point of view. First of all, I'm not I'm not very big on recovery drinks simply because, uh, you know, not that not because they don't have the right macronutrient ratios. I mean, that's that's exactly what they're designed to do, although a lot of them have more protein. Uh, there's a lot of research to suggest that carbohydrates are really what matters in a recovery drink. So some of them are like protein only. It's like a protein people drinking protein powder after a workout. That's you really want something with more carbohydrates. But the main reason that I'm not big on recovery drinks is because it's it's taking out the micronutrients and isolating macronutrients. That's, uh, that's never a good idea from a health perspective. And even from a recovery perspective, um, there's research to show that those micronutrients are, you know, uh, specifically antioxidants are beneficial for recovery. Antioxidants, in supplemental form, not they're good for recovery, but they mitigate adaptation. Meaning, you know, for the same given work, you might not get as strong from that that uh, interval session. But you know, antioxidants from real food—it's like the best of both worlds. No, no mitigation of adaptation, and um, you're getting enhanced recovery. So, uh, you know, your question of, you know should I cut my ride short to prepare good food? I mean, I, I hesitate to say, cut your ride short. Um, I would, I would hope that you would, you know, develop some sort of system where, you know, you've got, you've got good food on hand right after the ride. Uh, so you don't have to cut your ride short, but, um, uh, so I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I need to put you in trouble somehow, you know, right. <laughs> it was so too easy so far. I'm, I'm, I'm against, I'm against cutting out volume, but I'm also against, uh, I'm also against, you know, like recovery beverages. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, if, if you got to take, trying to find the balance, right. You got to find the balance. If you, if you got to cut your ride, 15 minutes short to uh make sure you get in a proper meal i'm i'm fine with that i'd say yeah yeah on, on the proteins that you mentioned um my my thinking here is that those drinks are better suited for other sports because if you do uh, if you don't do aerobic sports you don't use as much calories or kilojoules or whatever uh, so you, that the energy that comes from the carbs might not be so relevant. Instead, cyclists, if they eat daily normally, they probably have around, you know, anyway, 150 grams of proteins or at least 100. If you just eat in Italy pasta or whatever, some proteins come naturally with it. And most of the times are more than enough for for what your body needs right yeah so there's been some research on having carbohydrates and protein versus carbohydrates only and when uh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i remember that one yeah go 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 on go on <laughs> you already know the answer to this because you watched that video. oh yeah i love it <laughs> yeah, so when they first did the research they had um 
they had a carbohydrate only group and then a carbohydrate plus protein group. Um, what they didn't control for was the number of calories. So the carbohydrate plus protein group was having the same amount of carbohydrates as the carbohydrate only group, but they also added protein. So that group was getting more overall calories. And uh, not surprisingly, that group recovered better than the carbohydrate only group. However, so that led to a whole bunch of products being marketed as having the optimal ratio of carbohydrate to protein for recovery. I think Hammer Nutrition still has their recovery rate still advertises that ratio. I believe it's four to one or maybe it's three to one um, ratio of, of carbohydrate to protein based on research. But that research has since, you know, um, I don't know if you say it's debunked, but there's research to show that, uh, like, for example, here here's the newer studies. They, they have the carbohydrate only group. They have carbohydrate plus protein, which is, same amount of carbohydrate and then add protein. And then they have a carbohydrate only group that has the same number of calories as the carbohydrate plus protein group, but all carbohydrates, right? So they equalize the number of calories, but have it all carbohydrates. The group that recovered the best out of those three was the one that was high calorie and all carbs. So um, yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, basically the conclusion that you can get from, from the research on the whole from, uh, you know, carbohydrates versus protein for recovery is that it's really carbohydrates that are the most important thing. I mean, it's not, not that you should ignore protein completely, but, uh, what you should be thinking about when you get back from a ride is how can I get in my carbohydrates? Not how can I get in my protein? Yeah, I, I got the message loud and clear. Eat pasta, ride faster, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That that will that will work. That will work. Yeah. Good. So, uh, very very nice. I mean, I think we covered a lot of interesting stuff, and what we didn't cover, I mean, a lot of answers can be found in your videos. Yeah. What I is the future of your videos? future of my videos so what can uh, we expect i mean we, we want backwards hat dylan <laughs> videos chasing comps and puking around come right. on exactly <laughs> exactly so i've done i've done three three videos that are backwards hat dylan only like the whole video is just backwards hat dylan and, uh, people love those so i do plan to do more of those um when i first started the channel it was all training videos every single video is training videos uh I've gotten more requests to do some like bike check videos. I plan on doing that. But just recently, I talked about my experience at Dirty Kanza. And then uh, shortly after that, I did a race report from the Sugarcane 200, which uh, it was the one with the final sprint, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the 1200 watts kicking in after seven hours or <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I was shocked. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't have, I don't have a great sprint, but my sprint is, is not that bad if I've been riding seven hours compared to other people. <laughs> um, right. So anyway, uh, people really responded well to, to those personal stories in the, in the race reports. So with my, you know, my own race season coming up, I, I do plan to do more, more personal stories, more race reports, uh, I, you know, I want to 
strap a GoPro to the front of my bike and, uh, and get some footage from it and talk about it more instead of just every single video being, uh, you know, being a training video. I mean, I still love doing those and there will be plenty of those, uh, as well as backwards hat Dylan videos, but I, I do plan on doing more, more race reports and more personal stories as well. Yeah. And then, I mean, occasionally you can find some, some nice episodes that you can give your perspective. I, I remember the Emily Batty video, right? Which was a, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. The Emily Batty video. Um, uh, that was, yeah, that was a, that so, was a popular video. Some, some people don't know, don't know who Emily Batty is probably. So you probably should introduce her. And so Emily, Emily Batty is a, um, is a world cup, uh, cross country mountain bike racer. Um, she's from Canada and, uh, she, you know, she's been in the top five of the world cup for the past, you know, I want to say at least five years, maybe more. So, uh, she's a very high level athlete in this last season was probably her poorest performance season in the past five years, at least, uh, she at the time i made that video i don't think she had even broken into the top 10 at a single world cup race and um people were really questioning what was going on with her um i remembered seeing a video about her diet really early on um and then you know i i i think i thought about it mid-season and i decided to revisit that and i i rewatched that video um, and I was like, you know, this really isn't the diet that you want to be following if you're, if you're trying to be a top level world cup racer, or really, you know, try, if you're trying to perform well in any sort of cycling event for that matter, if you don't know what diet I'm talking about, she was trying to follow, you know, kind of a low carb keto style diet. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not with her day to day and I don't know what her personal diet is or or, you know, there's so many factors that affect performance, right? So we can't say that her diet is the reason why her performance suffered this year, but uh, I think it certainly contributed and I, I made a video about it. Um, I from, from my point of view, I mean, hearing someone who clearly has a, a coaching background like you do, um, giving us some explanations, possible explanations or some insights about what is someone doing and why is he doing he or she doing that? Uh, it's it's very nice to hear, and you don't really find this kind of content. And is it was one of the best videos of your of your channel, in my opinion, because uh, that kind of information or that kind of opinions is is hard to find. Right, right. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's funny. I don't know if you know who Durian Rider is um yeah 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 i know i yeah on, on youtube i think uh, i know a little bit yeah. i didn't really i don't know him in person but i know the the character yeah his channel is filled with it, with these controversial situations and him calling out people i think he even did a video on emily batty after i made my video on emily batty but uh uh he does it with no research it's just him talking camera for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever but um uh but i would say yeah i mean other than durian rider there there's there's not a lot of that content out there and uh i was honestly i was a little bit nervous about putting that video out i mean i thought you know i didn't want people to get the wrong idea 
and I was very. But you you express your opinion, and the the thing that you do is also you back it by research. I mean, if you cut out the part where you post your references or show some research, then it becomes you know, yeah, I think it is this way. But if you back it up, uh, it's not your opinion. You're presenting some stuff that is objective, and I think it's really what gives an edge to your channel. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They uh, like I said, I didn't, I didn't want people to take that video the wrong way. Like I was bashing Emily Batty or anything. I was, I was purely, and I, I said this at the beginning of the video. You know, I hope that Emily watches this video and takes it as advice, not criticism. Hmm. No, but also what you express about Emily can be uh, relevant for some other people that did something similar and had similar results so they can identify themselves in in her or in, in that kind of approach so well kudos for that i mean so we'll, we'll yeah. see we'll see I'm, I'm really curious now to see what will be the future videos that you will, that will be. yeah yeah if i i i like i love doing that emily batty video um not a lot of pros are super public about what they do in training but i mean if if uh you know, if pros want to put out videos, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a look at it and do a review video, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So thanks a lot for, for the chat. It's been, I think, very helpful and very nice also, because I mean, it was just, we went a little bit long, but it was, it was fun. We covered a lot of stuff that is really interesting and not easy to get. How long is your typical podcast? Uh, it's a bit shorter. <laughs> we'll All see right. if, if we'll make one or two episodes, but that's up to Stefano, who is the chief <laughs> in charge. Well, we, we had a lot of stuff to cover, so. Yeah, yeah. But again, thanks. Thanks a lot for this. And right on. Yeah. Appreciate having me. Ciao, ciao. Thanks. Bye. Yes, you too, guys. The episode was quite long but still sustainable. At the end of the day, one hour and 20 minutes, more or less, all included. It's not so bad. The topics were a lot and the rhythm was good. I would say super good. And I really love the thing that we have to continue eating pasta. So our performance are going to be the best on the bike. And I can feel completely myself when they were talking about people that they have a training that they don't follow it. Yeah, it's kind of myself. Thanks Seymour for conducting this amazing interview, thanks Dylan to be in this podcast this time and thanks to you guys who are following this podcast and I already know that you already rated, reviewed and also shared this episode. Please continue to do it. Well, what else? Just thanks to Open for the support into this year episode and nothing. Talk to you next week. Ciao, ciao.